0: In 1963, the year that the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson saw a vision of the white heat of technology, Martin Schmidt, an astronomer working at the Mount Palomar Observatory in California, detected another blazing source of energy. Schmidt is the man who got the credit for discovering the quasar, celestial objects that are intensely luminous, intensely energetic and immensely far away from us. But what are they and what can they tell us about our place in the universe? My name's Matthew Sweet, And this is the podcast from Intelligent Life, sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. And with me is Oliver Morton, who writes the Music of Science column for the magazine, and has written on quasars for the January-February edition. Oliver, quasar is short for quasi-stellar radio source. So this is not a star, but something like a star, or at least that's what the name implies.
1: Yeah, it's in fact very unlike a star, but uh, who knew? Uh, when they were naming it. The story is really one about the differences between different ways of looking at the universe. After the Second World War, when physics for reasons of radar and nuclear weapons has become very much the thing among people funding science, uh, you see a big expansion in the sorts of physics done. And one thing that benefits from this is radio astronomy. And so people start looking at the universe in radio wavelengths, and they discover that it looks wildly different from how it looks in optical, uh, how it looks to people using good old-fashioned light-based telescopes. And one of the things they see is that there are these extremely bright sources, like galaxies. The galaxies turn out to be quite bright because they have all these strange jets and fields around the magnetic fields. And there are some sources that they say, oh, well, these are really particularly bright and powerful. And then they look at the sky, and there's no galaxy there. There's just what looks like a star. And so these things become called quasi-stellar objects. But the spectrum of the star-like thing where the quasar is turns out to be very, very strange. From the spectrum of light, you can tell how far away something is, how fast it's traveling with respect to the Earth. And it turns out these quasars have very, very high redshifts, which means they're very, very far away. And yet they're very tiny. They have no. They seem to be just points in the sky. So what on earth is going on? Can we define what looking is in this context? How did news
0: reachers of these objects? Is it a crackle or is it an image of some kind? Is it a stream for of numbers? The, for How the, are they seen? For the
1: telescopes at this stage, it's still a matter of exposing photographic plates. And sometimes for using spectrograms, which break down the light into its different wavelengths so that you can see what's what. For the radio telescopes, it's considerably more complicated because you're just getting you're getting these signals in various different wavelengths and trying to synthesize them into a picture. But you can turn those signals into a sort of like crude printout in those days, showing you more or less what's coming from where on the sky, and that's where these sources come from. And looking at the spectra is what gives you the clue that they're very, very distant. But something you also notice is that they flicker. Now, normal stars flicker, but that's because of the atmosphere. That's not what's causing this sort of flickering, but they're sort of like getting brighter and darker on periods of sort of like, I think early on weeks, but later days. And that's really extraordinary because if something's that bright, and we're talking about a brightness equivalent to billions of stars like the sun, you would normally expect it to be big. But if it's big, how can it flicker uniformly? Since information can't pass from one side of it to another faster than the speed of light, you can kind of say that something that's flickering, the speed of its flickering tells you something about how big it could possibly be. So these things must be really, really small. And no one has any very clear idea about how you can get that much energy out of something that small, except for a young New Zealand physicist called Roy Kerr and some people who've listened to him, who just the year before had found a new solution to Einstein's equations of relativity.
0: So what implications did the discovery of quasars have for a certain picture of the universe? How did it change other
1: things? Well, that was where Roy Kerr's work came in, because what Roy Kerr had done was create a mathematical solution, as I say, to the equations of relativity, which described a black hole. People had been thinking about black holes. They'd had like crude models of what black holes might be. And so they knew that there was this possibility in the equations of relativity, which are 100 years old. um, They had this idea that there might be places where the fabric of space and time is so intensely curved that light can't come out, and that's a black hole. Things can go in, nothing can come out. But they didn't know, A, whether these things could really exist. They'd never done a precise solution of the equations to show that you could produce a black hole. They didn't know really what they would... Look like in a very, very loose sense of look like. and that's what Roy Kurd done, I think late in sixty two but no one had actually paid any attention yet. But what Kurd found was that black holes can have a spin, which is important because everything else in the universe has a spin. So if you collapse a star or a group of stars to form a black hole, you'll get this spinning warp in space into which Matter will stream because of the intense gravity and from which some of the matter will be squirted out with extraordinary energy along these jets that go out of the poles. And this is exactly what the radio astronomers were seeing. They were seeing these very bright points with strong jets coming out either way. And so it became fairly clear fairly quickly that what we were seeing were black holes. So this was an example of something that had been
0: theorised on paper and suddenly here there seems to be something observable, something that you can detect out there in the universe that matches the calculations that was a that very,
1: It was a very nice example of that. And it's a very interesting aspect of the history of general relativity because most of the time until then, so general relativity is almost 50 years old at that point, and really it hasn't solved anything very much. It's been very interesting for a certain sort of like mathematically-minded physicist and very interesting if you can actually do the maths, which are really quite hard. But it hasn't actually really had much real-world application. Special relativity has had a certain amount of real-world application, but general relativity, which is this theory of gravity and warped space-time, has had little really to recommend it to practically-minded people. Whereas now, to the extent that you can call a radio astronomer a practically-minded person, what Roy Kerr is talking about is exactly what they're seeing. And they realise that the universe has these big black holes in it. They later realise it has smaller black holes. But soon they realise that there are black holes at the centre of most galaxies, including our own. They start realising that there are other possibilities and they start using the equations of general relativity to explain all sorts of other things.
0: So the moment of the quasar's discovery is a great victory for Einsteinian
1: yeah, science. absolutely. Suddenly this theory, which is Utterly beautiful. Everyone agrees it's beautiful. Everyone agrees it's sort of like intellectually majestic. And it now actually turns out to describe something that nothing else could describe. And that's, yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: So what then is the relationship
1: between a quasar and a black hole? Are these companionate objects? There is a black hole in every quasar. Quasars are sort of like refers to the thing that we see. And you don't actually see the black hole. What you're seeing is this whirlpool of incredibly hot material that's being sucked into the quasar. And these jets of uh, stuff coming outside, there is rather nice word, uh, surrounding the inner black hole, there is something called an ergosphere of uh, really extraordinarily intense energies. And it's that that produces the jet. So the quasar is sort of like the phenomenon and the black hole is the explanation wrapped up inside it. And what does the quasar look like to the eye of the conventional light telescope? Well, the conventional light telescope, it still basically looks like a dot. To the rather more sophisticated eyes of the radio telescope, it looks like a sort of whirlpool-y sort of thing with big jets coming out either side. And the energy is coming out because the quasar is being fed by matter falling into it. The black hole is being fed. If the black hole isn't being fed... It would look very, very like the black hole in Christopher Nolan's film Interstellar uh, because Nolan's team worked very closely with one of the bright young people who came into the field at the time of the discovery of quasars or just after, and the professor at Caltech called Kip Thorne. And they really did work out in beautiful detail how to render. What a black hole would look like if it wasn't. Because obviously, if it was a quasar, anyone anywhere near it would be absolutely frazzled to be Jesus.
0: Well, this is one of the things that I'm curious about. What would conditions be like if we were in a galaxy proximate
1: to a quasar? Ah, it depends how proximate. I mean, around a quasar, you pretty much can say that that's not a region that you would want to be in at all. And remember, galaxies are quite big things. and Our galaxy has a big-ish black hole at the centre of it, but that black hole is not doing very much. But if a nearby quasar, yeah, there would be a lot of hard radiation, I mean really hard radiation, x-rays and gamma rays all around you, and it would be extremely unpleasant. Yes, you do, that's not a place where you would look for life.
0: And one of the defining qualities of the quasar seems to be that they are a very, very, very long way away from us. Is that because they're very rare or because of something about our place in the universe? Why is that?
1: There's a, probably a distribution over time that there may have been more earlier in the universe. They are fueled, so they eat up their fuel. But it is mainly a function just of the fact that if you look further away, you're seeing more of the universe, so you see more things in it. As they're so far away... Do we know that they're still there
0: as we speak or when we detect them, are we looking at the after image of something that happened many billions of We're years def-
1: ago? Definitely the latter. I mean, there's no way you could know anything. So like this is another part of Einstein's theory. There's no way you can know anything simultaneously about a very distant part of the universe. So, yeah, we are seeing light. I mean, from the furthest quasars, you're seeing light from 11 Maybe 12 billion years ago, they are extraordinarily distant objects, the the furthest quasars. There are some which are relatively close, but even they, they are a lot further away than the nearby galaxies. They are pretty rare objects, but when you're looking out at sort of like a sphere of space-time that's 13 billion years across, then you can see quite a few of them. (laughs) If this is a moment of
0: triumph for Einsteinian science, what is it that gets discarded at this point?
1: I think it is really much more a question of amplification. I mean, I think what happens in the 1960s and beyond is that because humans can look at the sky in radio wavelengths and then when they get up above the atmosphere in ultraviolet and x-ray, humans see a much more dynamic and energetic cosmos. When you just look at stars, you see stars and clouds of dust and nebulae. You don't get much sense of real process other than the gravitational processes by which stars orbit around the center of a galaxy or something like that. Once you start seeing in other radiations, you start seeing huge energies crackling around these galaxies. You start seeing things like quasars. You start becoming aware of the extraordinary energies much smaller objects, but the extraordinary dense energy around neutron stars, which uh, become known as pulsars, like lighthouses flashing in the sky, the universe becomes more dynamic, more savage, in a way. It becomes a much richer, slightly more dangerous feeling place, maybe. Does it
0: become more romantic? perhaps with a capital R. You know, it strikes me as I read your writing about science and reading the column about quasars particularly that there is a sort of intensity and romanticism about the way you write about those things which made me think whether quasars are for you what daffodils were for Wordsworth.
1: No, (laughs) really not. And it's... What I find particularly fascinating is the way that you can have these extraordinary objects. I mean, you know, it's not like a star isn't a pretty damn extraordinary object. You know, this is a nuclear reaction that's going on for billions of years, pouring energy into planets like ours that transform that energy into life. You know, a star is a wonder enough. So really needing something as bright as 100 billion stars right off the edge of the universe, it's almost like uh, self-indulgence. What I find fascinating, though, is the way that these extraordinary and, you're right, romantic images of the savagery of nature that, you know, you really don't see in the Lake District can also be part of the human experience, of the human experience of thinking about the world and also making use of the world. Because quasars, having gone from being these godlike beasts of energy in the far distance, are now domesticated, as it were, into being the way by which we navigate the stars because the well-observed quasars provide us with the ultimate reference frame for making all our astronomical observations and also actually for navigating around the Earth. GPS coordinates are calculated in the final analysis with reference to quasars at the edge of the observable universe. It's that that I find remarkable. It's not the pure romance of, oh, God, there's nature, it's so awesome. It's the humans can perceive this nature. To me, that's the essence of not so much romance as the essence of the sublime, which really drives me in these areas, which is this idea that it can be simultaneously incomprehensibly magnificent and comprehended. And the comprehension that the bringing this within the human sphere doesn't demean it. It doesn't remove that savagery, but it adds something to it. It's the dual image of seeing nature and experiencing oneself as a human seeing nature that I think is where the wonder is.
0: As a culture, though, as a species, we have a history of being able to handle ideas like this, don't we? I suppose the pole star might have been a similar kind of locus, something intensely practical, the the way we get around the world, but also subject matter for poets.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. To be able to wonder at the world and use it at the same time and not have that use erode the wonder is a trick because it is possible to get very used to the world and to lose the wonder from it. And I'm very glad to try and bring that back sometimes in my writing. But I never want to bring that back by saying world is other. I'm quite happy to say world is incorrigibly plural. Thanks very much, Oliver Morton. If you want to read Oliver's column on
0: quasars, you'll find it in the January-February edition of Intelligent Life magazine, in print, on our app, or online at intelligentlifemagazine.com. On the next podcast in the series, take a chance on me. I'll be talking to you about ABBA.